You are joining Talking Neoteric, a podcast that advocates for and shares new ideas, ways of thinking and doing about who we are, what we do and where we do it. Talking Neoteric spotlights creative practitioners, sharing their work and practices, each demonstrating their reach far beyond the arts with contributions to the broader health, livability and prosperity of regional Queensland. Today I've travelled onto the lands of the Tarabalang Bunda, Garang, Garang Garang and Bayali people. I'm in a very small regional community of Yarwin, just a few kilometres from the centre of Gladstone in central Queensland. And driving into Yarwin, it's such a unique place. You come across bushland, undisturbed, but then all of a sudden it's broken by these large elements of industry popping up beside you and also crossing the road. But I've come into the studio of the amazing Bindi Wall, a visual artist, an Iman woman on her grandmother's side and a Bunjalung grandfather. So Bindi, it's great to be back in your studio. And so tell us a bit about your family, about your grandmother and your grandfather. Um, we, my husband and I were transferred back up here in oh, the early 90s. And my father um, was brought up by his granny um, out at Nagoran. So Granny Eliza, Eliza Shields, an Iman woman, um, her oldest daughter is um, my father's mother. And um, I was fortunate because the local Indigenous community here had connections to that family, that mob. So when I was, walked into the community and said, I'm an Indigenous person, and they said, oh, is your mob, you know, what, what's your family? And I was just able to say, well, that. And that was like, ah, oh, yep, we know them. And there was that acceptance then and there, which is, you know, like lovely and welcoming. And so how how did you come to be in Yarwin? Where where are we? What is what is Yarwin for those who don't know? Um, it's a interesting. When we came here, we'd been transferred. My husband had been transferred to Gladstone, so he was a, a master on big offshore fishing, um, not fishing boats. Um, he was a fisheries inspector, so it was boating patrol. Um, we bought it Yarwin because we had a lovely big shed, and I was actually a potter at that stage, so I could fit my kilns in. Um, walking distance to a school, um, out of the rat race and um, close enough to the, the community to be part of it. But with regard to the industry, it's the, over the time we've been here, we've actually just seen it massively expand. I've been on quite a few reference panels or advisory groups um, with the Progress Association and I've always been part of community associations and that. And we just like to either sit on a community-based one, an arts-based one and an indigenous-based ones, and it kind of gives you a nice overview. So it is a community that's been absolutely, I'm not going to say ravaged, but um, a lot of the land was resumed by the state government. So we lost 180 farms. Um, so the impact of that, but it's been quite resilient. So it's... Um, it's still a farming-based community, but we're just over the hill from a lot of industry now. So, And industry is 
rather prolific and pronounced. Ah, oh, yes, yes. It's it, it's a difficult thing to criticise because a lot of our um, community rely on industry for come like everybody's got to put food on the table and you know for what people say you you know want to hop in your vehicles and that but um, that it's so concentrated in Gladstone um, you do have a, a for and against camp. So how does that sit being a creative practitioner because often creative practitioners are on the edge of that conversation? For me it was interesting because I um, got invi invited to sit on quite a few industry reference panels. We did the Visioning Gladstone 2035 reference panel and that and what they apparently was invited because of um, a creative thinker. So it's like creative thinking isn't just, you know, I'm going to do a painting or a pot and all of that. It is looking at things and holding them up to the light, thinking if there is another way, a better way um, to do something. And it's that pulling apart that I like. And then you put it back together for a while and you think, well, that did or did not work. And then you pull it apart again. And that kind of thing I always found quite intriguing. Um, and you know, it's not just, you know, with regard to just being an artist, it's the same with my role with the community here. We had opportunity to, with land at a place called Police Creek and there was so much opportunity there. And um, we worked on it and you'd see the benefits and you would see the things that were not going to be beneficial and you'd pull it apart, pull it apart and put it back together and present it again. Um, I think also there's a time and place for things to happen and things will not happen and that's for the arts also um, and that's for general community projects and it's, yeah. And so what have you seen happen in the Gladstone region because you've been here for a number of years. What have, what have been some of those incredible things that couldn't have happened without roles like yours facilitating with big industry and the opportunities and activities that have come about from supporting the visual arts in this region? I think um, most industries come in and they, well, I'm not going to say they want to buy your vote, but they do come in with a, a, a package. Um, you know, QTC would have had a, a, a community fund. Um, I sat on the panel for that. That was a couple of million every year that we were able to give away. Um, they, they, they want to keep the locals happy. Um, that's their workforce. So like you recognise that also, I think when the three gas plants were being built on Curtis Island all in one go, it was a massive challenge um, sitting through that and seeing what happened had to happen in the background for that to occur all at the same time. Um, the impacts it had on our housing, like people just could not afford rent. Um, we had the impact it had on things like the council. They lost a lot of workers who went over to Treasure Island. Um, the impact that it had on that value that's put into community consultation here that is, you know, very much splurged around the community and then when that's over it's no longer there. So it's a roller coaster for the community. And your I guess your contribution and your knowledge comes from multiple angles, not only as a visual artist and a community worker, but also with your Indigenous heritage. So what are the additional layers and sensitivities or or challenges or opportunities that, that come with that additional layer? 
Um, I think as a, like an Indigenous person, I, like, I'm quite conscious that some of my perspectives of Indigenous person isn't, aren't totally Indigenous mainstream. Um, and a little bit of that is those other perspectives. So a lot of issues, quite happy to unpack them, have a look at them, have a look at that issue through my, as an Indigenous person hat, pack that away, then look at it as a financial or a, like an industry or a community development type of hat. Um, and then in the end, you take what you've got from those three perspectives and you try and get that, meld that together and see if you can get something that, that's workable. Sometimes it's not going to work. Um, and sometimes, you know, like you get something close. But there's, um, there's a certain joy in getting just, you know, to be able to manipulate something to a point where you're thinking, ah, I think I've got all the boxes ticked. We're going to find out. And then you present it back. The, the last thing you do is that you become totally attached to something that you've created and think it can't be improved or it can't be rejigged or it can't be, re you know, there's not something that's going to come into that into the future that can make that something totally different. And then you also sort of often share that you come with the perspective of three eyes. What are these? What are these three eyes? Um, so that's Indigenous, um, an invader, which is um, my grandmother married an Englishman, um, and a Indigenous invader and an immigrant. So my mother's side of the family were German immigrants. Um, and I, I look at the whole three. I did an exhibition or a year or two ago and I did 50-year slices of history. And it could have been easily to do a, an Indigenous perspective with a whole, oh, you know, you came and took our land and that. But then I looked at Mary Wells. She was sentenced to death at nine for stealing something. She, it was commuted, she was transported, she arrived here and she was I think about 11 or 12 and then she was pretty much sold off, you know, you, you, I would take her as a maid type of, is she old enough to breed type of concept and I, I look at her and that's very successful family that have traced their heritage back to her, she's not a colonising bastard, she was someone who was caught into something also, so very much um, I see those different perspectives that there's just not that one, well, I can't personally do just that one, oh, you're all, you should not have come, and that kind of, it's cut and dried. And so what does it mean to you to, to know your heritage and how did you, how did you come to, to learn of it? Was it passed down through your family? Did you read it? Did you discover it through photos? Kind of were aware of it through my father. He um, and I, and I think a lot of people because there's quite a debate now. Um, like a lot of people are discovering their heritage later on. All of a sudden, you go and do your DNA, or you all of a sudden. And I think I famously did a talk about um, Aboriginal artists, where I said, all of a sudden, someone is an is Indigenous art an art form, or is it an art done by an Indigenous person? And I see two totally different things there. But um, for me, um, looking back, looking at my father's stories, our family are all researchers and writers or, or um, very much into genealogy in that and looking at what he wrote and it puts a context to it about what it would have been like for him growing up 
um, and being a bit of a darkie, that was how he was described once, he was a, a bit of a darkie. But to us, he was just dad. Um, and it's only in hindsight when you look back at your childhood that there's a clarification of th some things, what happened, and you think, oh, okay, it wasn't... That uncle was yelling at my dad and calling him those names because he wasn't really all that acceptable to that other side of the family type of because he had that Aboriginal blood in him, so. And so was, was culture and creativeness and creative thinking, as you describe it, was that inherent in your childhood? How did, how did this arts inflection start? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think it started for me as a reader. I, I, we read at home. You got a book for Christmas and a piece of clothing, if you're lucky. I can't even remember when we first got television, to be honest. I can remember going to an auntie's and there was... Disneyland in black and white and just so impressed with it. Um, and I wasn't at all, um, not, didn't draw endlessly when I was young. I um, basically, um, I like to read. Sometimes I didn't agree with the ending of a book, so in my own head I wrote the ending. After a while believed it, then someone would talk about the book and I'm thinking, you've got it totally wrong. Um, but I um, started as a potter. My, my sister got um, breast cancer. She got had four children. I came to live close to her to give her a hand and she made a decision she would make do a final firing of about 30 pots to hand to people to say goodbye. So she said, you've got to, you've got to give me a hand to do that. Um, and I did, and, and I quite enjoyed the process, like, as artists, I always looked at artists as like, oh, you just go and you throw a bit of paint around, you go, oh, wow, look at that. And there's no process and there's no thought put into it and that, and that's, in pottery, I like the process. If you, you know, you fire, you fire too high, you lose your glaze. If you don't let it dry, it just goes pop in the kiln and that. Um, and from that, I realised that there's an opportunity to think through things by doing things. So not necessarily just through making. I regard myself more as a, um, a maker than a, like a, a visual artist. I just, um, so I went down that path for a while. Also, there was always a content thing that I had to consider. Oh, well, let's add an extra challenge to it. Let's make it a financial challenge. Let's work out how you could make something that you could sell, that you could, you could buy a new kiln. And I'd sit down and plot out a process and then I'd say well who's going to buy it and then I'd go well you need to go and look for a market gap and that's usually been um, how I've had, like that craft career started um, if you own kilns the next thing you want to do is go oh what else can I put in the kiln or if you're going to do your pots and glazes like you once done that and you start to draw on them you go oh well I can draw on paper too um, and I think because there's been no formal, I've got no formal arts education, I never had that thought like I should be a painter or I should be a potter. It's like um, I can do what I want. Just go out and see something. Um, it's just slowly morphed into other things. And I think it's that analytical part that I enjoy the most, is taking materials and either making a profit from them um, having making them say something, um, or just making someone go, "Oh, gee, that's pretty." 
And so as we look around, if we think about this, you know, working with diverse materials and mediums, we've got, we're sort of sitting inside this, this beautiful room that's got glass windows looking out to a big shed. The shed has the kilns and lots of, I don't know, tools, machinery in it. And inside we've got a range of tables and paints and liquids and, I don't know, everything from lights to drying birds. <laughs> so you definitely cross cross the these art forms. So what is it that motivates you in all the in all the things you're creating? Um, it's usually so sometimes I want to say something. Um, I often use um, rhyming words poems um, come into the work. So there'll be sometimes I'm quite keen um, and I sometimes it's basically I get a bee in my bonnet about something and I go, well actually I just want to serve this back up to you all, but I don't want you to come back and yell at me. So what I want to do, make it as ambiguous, so you will make a decision what it meant. Um, And then when you come and say, oh, but you, and I go, well, no, I didn't actually. You took it, and let's talk about why you took that perspective of it. You know, like you're obviously angry about the issue, but you're not willing to look at a perspective. Um, The poems, I did like poems is when I was young I did like that rhyming and I think I've had a lack of confidence in really writing really in-depth artist statements because I just don't just don't have the education so it's simplistic but um the challenge is to give you something that you want to read to the end go hmm and then go oh hold up what'd you just say I'll need to have a chat or I never thought about it in that context. And it's not complicated. It is just laid out in front of you, but there is, it's ambiguous. It'll always be that little bit ambiguous. Yeah, so these layers that you're talking about, you know, sometimes we refer to them as rhymes, uh, sometimes as poems. They're accompanying texts that, that go with your artworks. And so what what's the process for you you originally started um, your arts experience as reading and writing and you sort of ventured through your sister into ceramics and then sort of done this loop back to painting when you get this bee in your bonnet is it is it the the visual work that comes first or is it the written work that comes first um, the visual actually usually it's like oh, I'm going to do a visual so it's going to kind of come over and go oh look at that you know, and then you capture them and it's a little bit like songwriting you've got to have that catchy tune if someone's going to be bothered listening to your lyrics so um, and it's not quite as probably as simple as that but you know like I'm a fan of Bob Dylan and kind of that and you get in the the words I will sweat over the words because ultimately and sometimes in the end I must say that Sometimes in the end it surprises me because this is part of my thought process also. So I will think I'm going to be talking about colonisation and then at the very end I might come back later and go, oh, that actually wasn't about colonisation as much as um, Christianity's approach to the land, like, you know, the earth type of deal. And then I think, you know, like, well, I'm going to have it both ways at the moment. But... um, it's just that layer, that, that layer where, because I'm quite happy to come back and review my work and go, oh, you've got that wrong. Or the other really nice thing is people come and talk to you about it and you think, wow, you know, you've, you've just un, 
it's a whole other meaning and layer to that. So what, do you know one of them off the top of your head? Can you give us one of your rhymes? The Bainton um, work was quite interesting because I, three years ago, two years ago, so um, I interestingly had quite a lot of people come and approach me about it. Um, a little bit worried because um, it did touch on to Christianity. Um, the, the title of the work was Forsaking a Sacred Mother to Appease a Heavenly Father. Um, and a lot of our mob are actually, you know, converted Christianity, very much religious in that. So the work was basically um, you stepped off your boat uninvited. No, you arrived, you stepped off your boat uninvited. Um, a holy book in your hand. You talked, but you never listened. You never really tried to understand. You spoke of a heavenly father and you spoke of a favourite son. You said all men were equal, equal, even us dark-skinned ones. But we were taught about shame and we were taught about how to mind our place. And sometimes our trust in you and your God was so very often misplaced. And still I hear you argue about that father, which name is wrong and which is right. And why do you think that he alone is the one that gives us life? For if tomorrow there is no father, you and I shall still stand. But if tomorrow, if there is no mother, now do you understand? So on the surface, that is about colonisation and enormous amount of missionaries arrived and straight away moved into communities and converted the, the savages and the heathens and that. In context later for me, I started to consider it's more about a Christian approach to the planet. You very rarely hear anything with regard to those religions such as Christianity and Muslim and that with regard to the planet. So most of the ones that actually have a thing where they, they honour the Mother Earth and that are nearly, nearly all indigenous um, cultures and that. So I expect you can have it both ways with that work. But um, now that it's kind of occurred to me, now I actually keep kind of noticing it. Like, And so what was the public response? We, we have a long journey with this work and with this rhyme poem um, because at the time... It was in a venue that, that I was director for, so I guess I saw the experience of the public. Um, and yes, that work sold on its first day on exhibition. It could have sold five times over. It captured the audience's time and they stood in front of it more than any other work. They would often walk close to it and then walk away from it. They wanted to see its perspective up close and from a distance. They would read the poem. It was it was a captivating work to watch people look at. What feedback did you get? I a lot of people just wanted to oh could I pop in and see you type of feedback, and um, and it was like yeah why type of thing. It, it won the People's Choice Award type of, um, also in that, and I think um, the comments were all really interesting. The the words made the work. Um, and then they would actually sometimes say, I saw the, the the cross on top of that church on the angle and, you know, and th did that mean that? And, and they were confirming that type of um, 
symbolism that was in the actual work. There's actually two works under that that work. <laughs> One can't waste a big sheet of MDF, can they? Can you? But um, just it was interesting because it was people wanting to touch base, talk to you, but they didn't have a strong opinion. It's like they just we were saying that's a different perspective. Um, none of them were angry because I did expect somebody to, this, this a heavenly father, which could have been something. I think if it was in America, I could have actually offended quite a lot of people um, with the state of America is in that moment with the Christian right and that. But it was pretty much taken on the, the chin. It was like, yeah, never ever considered that. And I think that's part of the power of, you know, creating a work in a studio like this that we're sitting in and then presenting it in a public realm is you get that varied opinion um, and the power of the art is actually to share those those varied perspectives um, as well. And it's something that your work does, um, yeah, in a gentle way but, but a profound way. And I'm sure we could unpack so many more of your works. We've only just delved in um, into the start of it. But as always, it's a beautiful conversation with you, Bindi, and I'm sure we'll continue many more. Thank you for joining Talking Neoteric, a podcast that shares new ways of thinking and doing through the lens of visual artists and arts workers. Listen in next episode to see where Talking Neoteric is in Queensland and who joins the conversation. Talking Neoteric is curated by Bianca Simovic with production by Ashley Salter. This project was made possible through the Australian Government's Regional Arts Fund, funding through the Regional Arts Australia administered by Flying Arts Alliance.